Good morning. Welcome to another edition of our um, Revelation study. Um, uh, we're looking this morning at Revelation 2, uh, verses 12 through 17. Let me, uh, let me open us with prayer. Our Lord in heaven, uh, you gave us your word. Indeed, Lord, the word became flesh and came into this world and dwelt among us and made God known to us, made your ways known to us, made your salvation known to us, your grace and your mercy. Lord God, you gave yourself to us. You condescended to stoop and be with us and make covenant with us, have fellowship with us. And Lord, when we read and study your word, we understand, we should understand that this is true fellowship. This is true communion with our God who speaks to us and gives himself to us by his word. May we then receive your word and receive you this morning. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 2, <clears throat> 12 through 17, the church to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> in, um, in the last letter of the Lord Jesus to the churches, the letter um, to the church in Smyrna, we heard in that letter unmitigated praise from the covenant Lord to his church. It was a beautiful letter. There was no rebuke. There was no call to repentance. There was only encouragement and a call to continue in what they were doing, to continue uh, in that enduring faith that was theirs until they finally receive their reward. Well, sadly, the same cannot be said for the letter here to the church in Pergamum. The church here in Pergamum, while it had some good qualities, nonetheless had a serious problem, and a problem which, if left unaddressed by the church, would result in the Lord himself, as we heard, coming and doing war against some of its members. It's not without reason, then, that 
they have this problem. It's not without reason that Jesus introduces himself to the church the way that he does. Uh, and it is a, it's a frightening introduction. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The first thing he wants the church at Pergamum to know is that the one who speaks is the one who bears a two-edged sword. Now, the thing about two-edged swords is that they cut both ways. They cut both ways, first, in the sense that the one who speaks, Jesus, judges the world. He will come in warfare, in judgment against the world at the end of days, on the day of judgment. And we'll read about this later on in the book of Revelation he will come with a sword from his mouth and destroy. But it's a two-edged sword. It also will judge his church. Indeed, we learn in Scripture that judgment begins in the house of God. And it's a two-edged sword as well in the sense that here in this letter, in this very letter that Jesus is speaking and giving to the church in Pergamum, in this letter it has both a word of encouragement and a strong word of warning. So it's two-edged in that sense as well. So we need to understand, when we're considering this letter, we need to understand the fact that our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, this is how he relates to his church. It might surprise us um, when we come to the book of Revelation, when we read words like this, um, Jesus speaking uh, in this way with such stern warning. Um, might surprise us because we're not accustomed, perhaps, to thinking about Jesus relating to his church in this way. We may be more accustomed to thinking about the way Jesus relates to his church in, a, in an unbiblical way, frankly. Um, sometimes we imagine that being in a relationship with Christ and with God uh, never involves the need of uh, or requirement of any kind of self-discipline or of church discipline. Um, it doesn't ever require um, walking in obedience to the Lord and demonstrating faithfulness uh, to him. Um, we might imagine, perhaps we've been told that uh, you can enjoy a relationship with Jesus. He's like your buddy. He's your co-pilot. He's your friend. Um, you, you might even think of him as your savior, but, uh, and you can be assured as he is your savior that your sins are forgiven and that you'll stand before God in, in a right standing on the last day. Um, and you might imagine that that's the case no matter how, how you live, no matter what you do whether or not you give any attention to Jesus' commands and recognize him as Lord at all. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth, biblically. To be in a relationship with God, to be in covenant with God, to be in a saving relationship with God, always, always involves submitting to him as Lord. Indeed, the very nature of our salvation involves our being delivered 
out of the slavery and bondage that we were under to sin and to Satan and the condemnation that came with that, being delivered from all of that into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, being brought under a true and rightful sovereign and recognizing him as such. So if you think about just the basic trajectory, the the story of the Bible, you can even go to the Old Testament and you'll realize it wasn't without reason that God, um, having delivered um, Israel from Egypt at the time of the Exodus, uh, revealed himself at that time to, to them by his covenant name, Yahweh. And he brought them to his mountain where he gave them his commandments, calling them to be holy as he is holy, calling them to recognize that they were saved out of bondage to be in covenant with him and recognize him now as their Lord. Well, the exact same paradigm is true in the New Testament. If we are in Christ, if we are saved in Christ, we've been delivered from bondage to the devil and to this world and to sin. We've been brought into fellowship with Christ, and we're called as such to to recognize him as Lord and to bear fruit in keeping with that. Uh, We're supposed to have, we're supposed to have new lives as Christians that are shaped now by the kingdom that we belong to, by the king who has saved us, and by the spirit that he has given us. We were saved so that we can now obey the Lord that we should have been obeying all along. But we couldn't before because we were dead in our sins. And we belonged to another master. No longer. Now, that's the good news. Having said all of that, let's look a little more closely at the letter to the church in Pergamum. Um, First of all, by way of historical background, Pergamum was another, like Smyrna, it was another very religious city. Um, It had a temple dedicated to Augustus Caesar, whom they called Savior. And it had a temple built to the goddess Roma. Um, Pergamum, like Smyrna, worshipped its leaders, and it worshipped the empire. In addition to that emperor cult worship that pervaded the city, um, um, and, and it was just as in Smyrna an official requirement of citizenship, it also had a temple de- dedicated to Asclepios, or Asclepios, Asclepios, a Greek god whom they called Savior as well. Uh, the god uh, in the mythology of Greece of medicine and healing, um, whose symbol was a serpent. Even to this very day, that symbol can be found in, in medical um, paraphernalia. Well, if that wasn't enough um, to show how religious they were, they also had an enormous altar dedicated to Zeus, um, whom they also, again, called Savior, and it was at the highest point of the city. This was clearly a pagan city. It was suffused with idolatry. And like in Smyrna, um, those who refused to take part in the festivals and in the ceremonies, uh, many of which were required by law, um, they would suffer social, economic, and evil, even physical uh, punishments. Jesus himself in the letter gives us an indication of the type of uh, persecution that the church had endured and was enduring 
um, there in Pergamum, when he mentions his servant Antipas, who was martyred for his faithful witness because he refused to bow, he refused to compromise. Jesus also here reveals the true nature in this letter. He reveals, reveals the true nature of such an idolatrous society. In verse 13 of our passage, he calls this city the place where Satan's throne is. And again, at the end of the verse, the place where Satan dwells. No doubt, many of the people of Pergamum did not see themselves as worshiping Satan and being under his tyrannical rule. Um, But according to Jesus, this is precisely what they are. They are sitting, as it were, in the temple of Satan where Satan dwells. Now, again, likely they didn't think of it that way. They wouldn't have perceived themselves as Satan worshipers. They probably just spoke of things like patriotism, natural or national identity, our cultural heritage, the bonds of society that we have, um, honoring our ancestors, etc., etc. Probably used um, words like that, euphemisms like that. But in reality, they lived in the spiritual serpent's nest. Think about how idolatry, you know, as we're thinking about this passage, we might think about how idolatry and sin may be euphemistically described in our day and in our society. Um, likely, people don't, again, we know, we, they don't call themselves Satan worshipers. Um, but you think of the names that um, society supported and, and state-enforced pressure uh, to, put, to worship false gods. Think of the names that those things go by in our day. Um, and ask, um, ask yourself if our day, our age, and even to a degree, some of our inclinations are any different from what we see in, uh, in Pergamum. Do people in our day, for instance, believe they are worshiping Satan when they ascribe to science or to medicine uh, the kind of honors, um, the kind of absolute um, allegiance and truth that belong really only to God? Or when they um, uncritically uh, wave flags and wear the emblems of their leaders and of their nations and swear loyalty to it all, even while their leaders and nations are engaged in atrocities around the world um, and even at home. Uh, do we believe that we're uh, worshiping and serving Satan when we uh, turn sports and, and, uh, and athletes into idols, um, television and, and movie stars into role models and, and experts? Or when we devote our lives to uh, the materialistic aim of acquiring more, 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 more. Uh, do we believe that our society, that, they're, that we're serving Satan and worshiping him when, when we clamor for our unalienable rights, particularly the unalienable right to slaughter our own babies and sell their body parts in the market? 
No, we don't. Usually name that Satan worship. But all of that most certainly is. And I'm sure you could think of many more examples. But Jesus commends the church in Pergamum for holding fast in the midst of this satanic atmosphere and all the pressures to deny the name and faith of Christ and to go along, to get along. Uh, This was a church that had such members as Antipas, whom Christ calls my faithful witness. Christ, the faithful witness, recognizes Antipas as being his image bearer, his faithful witness. This was a church in large measure that was willing to endure the reproach the hatred, the mockery of society, and even death itself uh, for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and salvation. This was not a church that saw the, the great divide between itself and the world, that saw itself, or that saw a great divide between itself and the world, that saw itself as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, uh, a church, a people in the midst of Babylon. This was a church that, in large measure, would not swallow what the world was saying, would not go along with the Satan worship that was all around it. It would not buy what the world was trying to sell, and uh, it was willing to pay the consequences for that. That said, the other edge of the sword, there was a problem. As one commentator observed, while standing against Satan's frontal assault, the church had let a dangerous enemy slip through the back door, the Nicolaitans. You will remember, um, I spoke about the Nicolaitans when we talked about the first letter of the Lord Jesus to the church in Ephesus. We learned there in that letter that Jesus hates the Nicolaitans. And thankfully, the church in Ephesus hated them as well and resisted them. Sadly, however, this church, the church here in Pergamum, had a a soft spot for the Nicolaitans. So who, again, were the Nicolaitans? Somewhat hard to say. Historically, there isn't a lot of evidence pointing to any particular person or group. Uh, Some believe it may have started with a guy named Nicholas. We're not sure. However, we can know them by their works. We know who they were, by what the influence, by the influence they were having on the church. And scripture interprets itself. So help, helpfully here, we get an idea who the Nicolaitans were by their being linked for us in our passage to Balaam and to Balak. You might recall in the Old Testament when Israel was in its wilderness wanderings, there was a prophet Balaam who at the behest of Balak was sent out to curse Israel. But God prevented Balaam from cursing the Israelites. You can read about this in Numbers 22 through 24. God wouldn't let him curse Israel. Instead, he blessed Israel. But Balaam eventually found a subtler method of overcoming Israel. He advised King Balak to send Moabite women to seduce Israelite men into sexual immorality and into idolatry. And in this way, it would, they would succeed 
in alienating Israel from the Lord and so succeed in removing the blessing. By this, by this method, Balaam lured God's people into a defeat greater than Moab could ever have inflicted. Because of their immorality that they fell into, sexual immorality and idolatry, the Lord himself came against Israel. He brought a plague upon them. And you can read in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9, that that plague killed 24,000 in Israel. The Lord himself came and did war against his people. The Nicolaitans apparently then, are the New Testament, we might say, counterpart of that ancient method in temptation. In fact, the name Nicholas means victor over the people or one who overcomes the people. So the name Balaam in Hebrew means essentially the same thing, one who consumes or rules over the people. The names themselves, Nicolaitans, Balaam, are revealing, showing that by subtle temptation, Satan was attempting to lure people under the yoke of his lordship through immorality and alienate them from the Lord God because of their sin. It's really a revisal of that old trick of the devil, the oldest of temptations the serpent pulled on Adam and Eve Did God really say that you cannot eat of any of the trees of the garden? Implying that that was so rigid and unfair and and unnecessary. Well, the Nicolaitan era was, in essence, a teaching that maintained that one could have God and be in a right relationship with him and at the same time flirt with the world. One could enjoy the little sinful delights of the world, engage in its little pagan activities from time to time and its idolatrous practices, and you can still be holy. You can still be faithful. You're not really compromising anything important. It's a doctrinal error akin to what we call today antinomianism. But in reality, it's a temptation that says the little temptation the little compromises, the little slips here and there, they're no big deal. It's okay. Jesus notes specifically in our passage that the church in Pergamum was tolerating those who, like the church in the Old Testament, taught that it was fine with God if one participated in idolatry or in sexual immorality as though these things were really indifferent to those who believe, those who are really Believing, I mean, if you have faith, you can, you can go ahead with that. It's no big deal. And it, it is in this way that Satan, by the means of the Nicolaitan error, was luring Christians. He's coming in the back door. They wouldn't bow down to the idols. They wouldn't go to the temples of the false gods. They were paying the price even by not burning incense to Caesar and so forth. But the, through the back door was coming little sexual immorality, little spiritual complacency, infidelity, little compromise. It's okay. And they started eating forbidden fruit. They were engaging in sexual immorality and in the idolatry that is part of that. 
And they were thinking of it as a big thing. Somehow unnecessary for maintaining a faithful witness to Christ and being in a good relationship with him. Now, understand, not everyone in the church was engaged in these things. Um, The Lord notes that. However, there were some who were engaged in those kinds of activities. There were some who were having premarital sex and thinking it was fine. And the worst thing about that was the church was not doing anything about it. The church wasn't addressing it. The church wasn't, not only was there not self-discipline in some of its members with regard to these sins, there was not church discipline being exercised with regard to some of these members who were engaged in that kind of sin. And as such, because they weren't dealing with it, because they thought of it as a small little thing, they were putting the whole church in real danger, as we read. Putting the whole church under the threat of the sword of Christ coming down on them with the rest of the world. If they weren't going to exercise church discipline, then the Lord himself would come. If they weren't going to keep the temple of the Lord clean and pure and holy, then he would come and drive out those who were defiling it himself. Christ's sword of judgment cuts both ways. It destroys the enemy, it judges the world, but it will also serve as the instrument of judgment upon unfaithful churches. Indeed, judgment begins with the house of God. Even though this church had withstood overt persecution from without, it allowed this infection, this spiritual virus, to get in and corrupt it from the inside. So this is a reminder, people of God, that for all of our looking at the world and seeing the wretchedness of its idolatry and sin, we cannot forget to be on guard for ourselves. Those little compromises that we excuse in our own lives, they, they creep in, they get a hold. And before we know it, before we know it, we're, we're a lot more like the world than we want to believe. We should spend probably less time thinking about all of the uh, moats in everyone else's eyes and more time getting rid of the beam in our own. We should be less busy, perhaps, fretting over the satanic character of the world around us. I mean, that's what it is. The spirit of this age, spirit of disobedience reigns here. So we should be probably less busy fretting about that and more time fighting the good fight of faith right here in our own lives and in our own churches. We cannot become complacent about sin in our midst. We cannot, like the church in Corinth, for instance, who had the same problem, we cannot call ourselves holy while tolerating overt sexual sin and idolatry and the like in our midst. The temptation to do this is very strong, especially when you have new converts. Um, It's one thing to take the man out of the world. It's another thing to take the world out of the man. It's also a temptation for saints who have been in Christ for many years. We we tend to become lax. The temptation 
to let one's guard down and become somewhat complacent. As a church, as Christians, we need to be diligent in humbly encouraging one another, speaking to one another about these things, um, encouraging one another, even at times rebuking one another in love. Um, when we see our brother or sister compromising, slipping into some sin, uh, or ourselves, we hope we will be addressed. And when necessary, churches really need to engage in church discipline. Because as this passage clearly teaches, if we don't clean our own house, Christ will. In Pergamum, as in every true church of Jesus Christ, the one who repents of such sin and such compromise, such flirting and dabbling with the things of this world out of convenience or compromise or just to get along, the one who disciplines himself, recognizing that the lordship of Jesus demands everything, that he saved every aspect of our lives, not just our souls. The church that practices faithful church discipline, according to this passage, this is the true victor. This is the true conqueror over the world. This is a church that is not conquered by the world or by Satan. We are overcomers who stand fast and do not compromise. And to the victor goes the prize. Christ here promises that those who repent, those who purge out the leaven of sin and sexual morality and idolatry, and and those who are diligent to fight against compromise, um, he promises some of the hidden manna and a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Manna is that bread of heaven that nourished God's people in the wilderness, and Christ is promising to be our true bread, nourishing us from above, nourishing us in this world and in the world to come. He, he is promising here to shepherd and provide for us just as he did our fathers and mothers in the wilderness, to sustain our lives by his own presence. So rather than being tempted to turn back to the banquets and feasts of idolatry and immorality in Egypt, we're being reminded here that our nourishment comes from above. Something far better is given us in Christ from heaven. And the white stone is a symbol of our having been chosen, our having won. No one wants to reach into the bag and pull out a black stone. Uh, manna was described as being white and looking like a stone. So these symbols kind of come together and uh, re represent the, the climax of our pilgrimage, the, the reward of righteousness, white and pure as our Lord is white and pure as we are white and pure and righteous in him. And the new name, well, in scripture, when God gives someone a new name, like Abram to Abraham, or Simon to Peter, or Saul to Paul. It represents their having a new identity in covenant with God. It represents who they are now in Christ. All of these that are promised to the one who conquers and overcomes are symbols of being in Christ, being pure in him, being victorious over the world in him, having our identity in him, 
and not in, in this world or anything in this world. It, it, it demonstrates our being shaped by his sovereign grace and power and marked off, chosen as his people, a people that reflect in themselves the glory and the purity of their Lord. He is our high priest who bears the names of his people on his chest and stones representing us, identifying with us. And all of this brings us back to the very beginning. We must, this passage is reminding us, we must confess Christ Jesus as both Savior and Lord. Believing that he died for our sins and that he died to deliver us from sin. Believing that he put to death in his body on the cross both the guilt of sin and the power of sin that once had control of us. We are being reminded here in this passage to be free as we are free in Christ Jesus and not let ourselves slip back into bondage. Not give in to those little compromises that we think in our minds who justify little, little compromises here and there which will eventually add up. We'll find ourselves again in a state of bondage. Let us repent of those compromises. Let us repent of the sin that's still in our lives and keep striving forward, fighting the good fight, seeking to live under the banner of the Lordship of Christ and not under the banner of this world. Seeking to show to the world that in Christ Jesus, indeed, we are light. We are children of God. We are not sons and daughters of disobedience. Let us resist the devil. As John says in one of his letters, little children, flee idolatry. Well, thank you for joining me this morning for this study. I hope it was... um, enlightening. I hope it was encouraging. I hope um, you take it to heart and that it uh, bears good fruit in your lives. Um, thank you for joining. Look, to, look for us again next week, same time, and God bless.